0: You are now listening to the Bayshore Community Church Podcast. Our mission is to connect to God, connect to people, and to serve the community. Thank you for joining us today, and wherever you are listening, we hope that this message inspires you, encourages you, and transforms you. Our prayer is that this is just the beginning of a conversation between you and Jesus. Enjoy the message. Hey, listen, I love this season. I love the fall. It's my favorite season. And I love the, of course, the rain was terrible this week, but then cleared up and looked great. And Karen and I took a nice ride, bike ride yesterday. And uh, how many have got your mum already? You got your mum already? You got your mum? We got our mum yesterday. How about your pumpkin? You got your pumpkin yet? We haven't got our pumpkin yet. We're working on that. But you got to have your pumpkin, got to have your mum uh, this time of year, and, uh, but uh, we're just uh, loving this, uh, this season. Well, we're in a series called Faith of the Flaw, and we've been talking about the people in the Bible that really messed up, the people that really blew it. And uh, what we know about the Bible is its transparency, its honesty with its characters. None of the characters in the Bible are perfect except for Jesus. Um, every character had flaws, every character made mistakes. So these things are uncovered for us so that we can sort of, uh, you know, understand how to avoid some of the pitfalls that they went through. But also to understand that when we do blow it, that we're in good company and that we can get back up and start again. So we've talked about Noah's drunkenness. We've talked about Abraham lying. We've talked about Jonah's disobedience. Today we're going to be talking about David and his adultery, uh, and a very, very interesting uh, story in the Bible. One of the most well-known scriptures in all of the Bible uh, is King David's uh, moral lapse, and it's found in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and actually the story... Is in section second chapter chapter eleven, but also chapter twelve is when Nathan confronts David for his sin, and then David gets back on track. So let me let me read to you uh, the story. Although you know the story, it's probably good for us to read the story. Second uh, Samuel 11, 1 through seventeen. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war. David sent Joab out with his king's men and the whole army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Reba, which is the capital of Ammon. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him, uh, sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was and the soldiers were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from the military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and and Israel and Judah are staying in tents And my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk." But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants and did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is the fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had, had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men of David's men uh, army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. So this is a, a shocking story from a number of perspectives. Well, somebody said that, you know, and this is true when you look at the story, David broke almost half of the Ten Commandments in this story. Uh, he committed at least four of the uh, commandments that he broke, Uh, he coveted his neighbor's neighbor's wife, Uh, he lied in the story, he committed adultery, and then he committed murder. So when you talk about messing up, this is probably the biggest mess up in all of the Bible. Uh, David is way off track here. What's shocking about the story is who it was that was doing this. This is David, the man that was Chosen to be the successor to King Saul because King Saul was not such a good king. And when Samuel the prophet anointed David, he said that he was a man after God's own heart. It was David that wrote, As the deer pants for the water brook, so pants my soul for you. David had a hunger for God, a love for God, a passion for God. He was an amazing person. He uh, was the one that... uh, conquered the Jebusite area and established the city of Jerusalem as the capital of the kingdom. He was the one that went to battle after battle after battle, trusting God, arrows flying around him, and yet he was never injured. And he had victory after victory after victory. The songs about David where Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his ten thousands. This is a man of great faith. We know him from a little boy, young man, when he killed Goliath. And then he was a great uh, musician as well. He loved to sing and play the harp. We knew he was uh, musical. And uh, we have in the Bible, the Old Testament, we have the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms. And the book of Psalms has 150 chapters in it. David wrote 73 of those Psalms worshiping God, loving God, serving God. Uh, in those psalms, we find Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, he restores my soul, he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. This is the man that committed adultery. This is the man that lied. This is the man that committed murder to cover up his sin. So when you think about this story, we have to think about it in the context of who it was that did this. And so it's humbling when you read about David, and what's the big takeaway? The big takeaway is if David, who loved God at such a deep level, if David, who was in such a communion with God that God could speak to him and give him a 73 Psalms, if it was David who actually brought the ark into Jerusalem and danced before the Lord with all of his might, glorifying the Lord as he brought the ark of the covenant into Jerusalem, if David could sin, if David could fall from such a height to fall to such a low position, then anybody can sin. Anybody can sin. We have to be careful. One of the things that happens in our life, our Christian life, is we begin to think that, hey, listen, we're beyond these things. We can never do this. We can never make a mistake like that. But what I think is important that we remember is that if David can sin, then all of us can fall into sin. That's the big lesson, the big takeaway, from David's life. Here's what we need to remember: All of us have a sin nature. We have a sin nature. Uh, Those of us that know Jesus and born again, we have a new nature as well, but we have this old nature that's always there that we have to deal with. And Jesus said, out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, sexual immorality, lying, hatred. Jesus said, when you examine the human heart, we all have these things in our heart. And we need to be always aware that these are the things that really dwell inside of us. And when we're baptized, water baptized, it's that water baptism that we look at to bury that old person. So David fell into sin. And the Bible says this if you think you're standing firm, take heed lest you fall. If you think you're like on top of it and you're really good and you got it together, take heed lest you fall. It's very important that we always have that kind of awareness and be humble about the whole, the whole issue of what we're dealing with, a very important thing for us to think about. And uh, it says, and let me fi- find this in Galatians. Galatians talks about Galatians 6.1. Galatians 6.1 says this. If someone falls into a sin, someone really blows it, and they really mess up, uh, here's what Galatians says, how we should deal with people like that. It says in Galatians 6.1, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, if someone really messes up, brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently with compassion. Why? But watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. Anytime you see a, a big Christian leader fall, anytime you see some... Famous uh, person have a moral failure. Our tendency is to say how could they do that? How could they do that? The Bible says our response should be that we should work in mercy and gentleness to restore such a person, but to watch ourselves, to watch ourselves lest we fall. So listen, Because of our sinful nature that's inside of us, uh, when we look at a man like David who sinned to such a degree, what we need to know is that anyone can do anything. Anyone can do anything. And sometimes we think, oh my gosh, that couldn't be me. I could never uh, do that. Jude 1.24 says this, to him who is able to keep us from stumbling. And to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To him who is able to keep us from falling. Remember Peter? My friend Sammy Fisher last week spoke about Peter. Uh, Peter said, Lord, I'm never going to deny you. I'm never going to mess up. These other people may mess up. But Lord, you need to know that I'm the man. I'm going to do this. And it was that attitude. It was that sense of um, hubris, that sense of pride, that sense of arrogance that he was not gonna fall that led to his fall. So we have to always walk with humility. Anytime I see someone fall, anytime I see someone stumble, anytime I see someone do something that is horrendous, I always say to myself, Lord, keep me, protect me from stumbling. Protect me from stumbling. A number of years ago, I, I mentioned uh, uh, my friend, Sammy Fisher, who spoke last week, and Sammy and I have been friends since second grade and uh, we have sort of an odd relationship. We're best friends, and, but we kind of goad each other all the time. We have a bit of sarcasm in our relationship. It's how we show our love to each other. We're sarcastic with each other. And uh, we were taking a bike ride a couple years ago. Every time he comes to visit, we, we ride the, uh, the Gordon Pond Trail. And, and uh, a couple years ago, we were riding, and somewhere in the middle of the trail, uh, we, we were slowing down, and Sammy slipped and fell off the bike, and, our kind of dysfunctional relationship i was kind of laughing about him said oh man you can't even stay up on the bike and all that and um, so last year he came we rode the gordon pond trail and we get to the end ironically sort of toward the end where henlopen state park beach is there and uh it was actually where joe biden had his bike accident and sammy slipped and fell and uh and I'm laughing again, you know, I said, man, you're going to put train wheels on that bike next year. You know, this is two years in a row. So I'm laughing at him. And then we're riding into town. We're going to meet our wives at Grotto's for, for lunch. And we're riding through, uh, through town on our way to Rehoboth Avenue. And as we're riding through town, um, you know, I turn around to see where Sammy is, if he's behind me. And as I turned around, I began to drift to the right and I ran into a telephone pole and fell off my bike. You can just imagine what Sammy said at that point. He said, oh, man, we're going to get some training wheels for you, it looks like. Well, you know, when you think about, you know, we, when we look at somebody and they fall, and we take that sort of like, how could they do that? Then we need to take the lesson from David. The reason that this story is in the Bible is to humble us to recognize that if David could fall, anybody can fall. If David could be so close to the Lord and yet miss it, then it could happen to anybody. And so David finds himself in in jeopardy and difficulty here. So let's look a little bit about David's fall. And his fall was adultery. He fell into adultery. Now, uh, the studies show that 32% of men are guilty of cheating, married men. 32% of married men are guilty of cheating, and 20% of women are guilty of cheating. So when you look at the stats, that's like 3 out of 10 men, uh, according to studies, have admitted that they cheat in their marriage, and then 20% of women. So that's a real thing that we have to think about. So when you think about this, what was it that led to David's demise? What was it that made him stumble? And... uh, so let me, let me unpack this a little bit, and there's a couple things I want us to think about. First of all, who is David? He's the king. He's a powerful man. There was a study that uh done about 1,500 leaders, business leaders, and the study determined the more powerful a person was, the more likely they were to cheat in their marriage. The more powerful they were, the more likely they were to cheat in their marriage. And I wonder about why that is. And you think about David. He's been the king. He's established the, the capital of Israel. He's worked so diligently to establish his, uh, his kingdom. Uh, he's, he's led the armies. He's gone to... To all the battles. And year after year, he's expanded his kingdom. No doubt he's been criticized. No doubt he's been under pressure. No doubt he's been under a lot of scrutiny. No doubt his job has been very difficult. No doubt he's sort of isolated. He's lonely at the top. And so what Tim Keller says, a wonderful teacher uh, from Deemer Presbyterian Church in New York City that used to be the pastor there, Tim Keller says that what happens to powerful people, is that they get a spirit of self-pity. And the spirit of self-pity is, is that nobody gets me, nobody understands me. I've, I've dedicated so much for this company, I've dedicated so much for this job, I've given so much for this job, and I've, I've invested so much, and nobody seems to appreciate me. And so you get that spirit of self-pity that comes into, into leaders, of high-profile leaders. It happens to clergy, it happens to business people, it happens to people that sacrifice and sacrifice and sacrifice and they're criticized and they're drained emotionally. And so the time comes where this self-pity becomes fully uh, mature. And so they feel like because they've sacrificed it so much and nobody gets them, nobody understands them, that they are entitled, they're entitled to indulge in something that's immoral. And that's what happens sometimes to the, to the man that's, you know, working hard and, and it comes home and his wife maybe is critical of him or he thinks she, she's critical of him and that he's working out there and maybe she's working a little bit or maybe she's staying home or maybe she's working full-time or maybe she's taking care of the kids and he feels like he's working overtime to make ends meet and he begins to feel a little self-pity that nobody appreciates me. She doesn't appreciate me. She doesn't care about me. She doesn't doesn't really appreciate all that I sacrifice. And that self-pity creates an environment where he feels entitled to do something. It could happen at the same way with a, with a wife that feels like she cooks the meals and she's working her job and all that, and her husband is always off fishing. He's always off golfing. He's always, he's completely distracted. He doesn't pay attention to her. He doesn't listen to her. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't tune into her. She's, she's just basically living her life alone. He does his job, and this is the big problem with men. Men have a tendency to, you know, they, they, they win the prize. They, they woo the bride. They bring him to the altar. They get married, and they achieved that goal, and then they move on to perfect their golf game, or they move on to, you know, perfect, you know, get the biggest deer they can get. And so men become distracted. Men are goal-oriented, and sometimes they go after the goal. The first goal was their spouse, and then after they've achieved that, they go on to other goals, and they neglect their wife. So the wife begins to think, well, listen, you know, I'm neglected, and that self-pity comes in. And it's out of the self-pity that the enemy exploits that. And I just wonder if David, if David is uh, full of self-pity, he's maybe a little melancholy. The Bible says that he sent everybody else to war, and he stayed home, and he's laying on his couch, and he's bored. Maybe he's exhausted. Maybe he's tired. Maybe that self-pity is just working in his mind, and he's thinking that nobody really appreciates him. And then he falls in to something he shouldn't fall into. So that's part of what could be happening with David. And so I just want to say to you, this is just a little subpoint, but I would say to you, guard against self-pity in your heart. Guard against, hey, listen, nobody loves me, nobody appreciates me, I'm going to go home and eat worms. Be careful of that. Because the enemy wears us down, nobody appreciates me, nobody loves me, nobody cares about me. Or I've sacrificed so much, i work so hard, I've I've just worked when people don't know I'm working, I'm I'm at the business when everybody else is going home, and nobody seems to appreciate me. So I feel entitled to do something I shouldn't do. And I think that's what happens to a lot of political leaders, what happens to a lot of high-level clergymen, that fall into sin and we just have to be very very careful about that a couple factors here in the story that's interesting one is this this idea is that uh, david is in jerusalem by himself david is in jerusalem by himself and uh, he's in jerusalem and he sent the armies off and usually the kings lead the armies into war but david sends joab to take the army out and so everybody the whole army has vacated the city in, in Jerusalem, and David is by himself. He's all by himself. He's alone. And you have to watch out for when you're alone. The guy, the businessman that goes to, you know, has the, he travels, and he goes, you know, travels, gets on the airplane. He ends up in these motel rooms by himself. So, isolation in the story is part of the part of the interesting thing that David was by himself. We have to watch it when we're by ourselves. We have to be very careful. And somebody says that integrity is what you are when no one else is looking. And so, you know, sometimes we behave like we're supposed to behave when there's people around us. When people see us and they can, they can uh, we know there's eyeballs on us, that's a good thing. But when you get all alone, all by yourself, and nobody's looking. What are you at that moment? And that's the, what David is struggling with. I, I watched the movie a number of times in my life, uh, City Slickers with Billy Crystal. I love that movie. It's one of my favorite movies. It's about, you know, a bunch of guys that are, you know, like on the edge of middle life, and they're kind of burned out. and uh, Billy Crystal, who plays Mitch in the movie. From New York City's an advertising agent he goes to uh, he goes out to this dude rants with a couple of his buddies uh, one of the guys is Ed and they're riding on their horses and there's a beautiful girl in the in the group and Ed is saying to Mitch why don't you cheat on your wife why don't you cheat on your wife why don't you you know how can you be with one woman your whole life how could you be completely f- uh, have fidelity toward one woman your whole life and uh and mitch is not buying into it he loves his wife barbara played by patricia wedding in the in the, in the movie and uh, here's what here's what ed says to mitch what if a woman comes down in this um this this uh uh this spaceship from outer of space and and it lands on the earth and this beautiful woman walks out of this spaceship and and you're, you, you, are, you, are, you and her are the only people there. And nobody's ever going to know. And you engage in some kind of relationship with this woman. And then she gets back in the spaceship, and she goes up, back up uh, into the outer space. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you do that? Because no one would ever know. And Mitch, played by Billy Crystal, gives a great answer. He says, I wouldn't do it. Because I would know. I wouldn't do it because I would know. And so integrity is what you are when no one is looking. And everybody has left left town, and David is all by himself. And so that's an important thing. Hebrews 4.13 says this, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him, to whom we must give account. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. The Lord always sees me. The Lord always sees what I do. The Lord always sees what you do. And so we we live with that awareness. And uh, I've been memorizing Scripture lately, trying to memorize some Scripture, and I memorized uh, Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. And then the next verse, verse 5 says, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near." Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. What does that mean? It means that the Lord is so near me that my behavior, if I'm abrupt and, and terse with people, the Lord is near. The Lord sees everything I do. So David is, uh, David's in that situation about nobody's looking. Nobody's looking. Second thing that we learn from the story is that David is not doing what he's supposed to be doing. David is supposed to be leading the army into battle, and it says in the spring when kings go off to war, David stayed in Jerusalem. So he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing, and because he's not engaged with what he's supposed to be engaged with, he becomes engaged with things he shouldn't become engaged with. So it's important for us to remember that, that you know, one of the things that keeps us away from temptation is not, is not uh, leisure. It's not like having all this excess time on our hands. But one thing that keeps us out of trouble is to be doing what we're supposed to be doing, and then we won't be doing what we shouldn't be doing. Uh, And so uh, here's what I wrote it this way. When you're occupied with what you're supposed to be occupied with, you will not become occupied with what you're not supposed to be occupied with. So if David had been on the battlefield, he would have never seen... Bathsheba. If David had been doing what he should have been doing, then he wouldn't have got into trouble. And so it's important for us to remember that's an important thing. Uh, now I don't know if you know this about Saint Jerome. Saint Jerome is a famous figure in church history um, in the fourth century. He translated the Bible into Latin. Now, uh, he did that in Bethlehem. If you ever go to Jerusalem, you go to Bethlehem, you can see where St. Jerome translated the translation of the Bible into Latin and very very important translation called the Vulgate. Now, what we don't know about uh, St. Jerome is St. Jerome struggled with lust. He struggled with uh, erotic desires. We know from his writings and what he thought he would do is he thought he would would go... uh, into the desert and become a monk. And if he went into the desert and became a monk, he would be away from the temptations of the world and he wouldn't be tempted anymore and so he would just be in the desert and he wouldn't have any problems. But the problem with that theory is when you go in the desert, you take you with you. And so when he got into the desert, what Saint Jerome said was, said he still had these erotic fantasies of dancing girls. And he was struggling. And so he left the desert and he goes to Rome. And he goes to Rome and of course that wasn't good because of all the activity in Rome. And finally St. Jerome goes to Bethlehem. And he spends years translating the Bible from Hebrew and Greek into Latin. And St. Jerome says that was what cured him. That was what delivered him of his tendency toward erotic and lustful desires. So it wasn't until he occupied himself with what he was supposed to be occupied with that he found freedom and liberty. So when you think about that, it's an important thing about David was not doing what he was supposed to be doing and so therefore he got in trouble. Here's what Mark Rutland says. Mark Rutland says about David. He said, downtime is not all it's cracked up to be. I know this flies in the face of much, of much that's being taught today, but we would be wise to remember the old proverb, an idle mind is the devil's workshop. It was true for David, and it is true for all of us. I have struggled much more in seasons of lonely boredom than in demanding days of hard work. Bored boys become bad boys. Boredom is your enemy. So David was not doing what he was supposed to be doing. He was not occupied with what he should have been occupied with. And I know when our boys were growing up and they went into adolescence, one of the things that we did for our boys is we kept them crazy busy all the time. Made sure they did their homework, they played soccer, they played basketball. We kept them really busy. Because, you know, it's important that if you're occupied and you're busy, that helps you in this area of your life. Here's Rutland goes on to say again, he says, The danger of overwork is real to some extent, but the risk is greatly overrated. The far greater danger is loss of focus. The appetite for the lazy self-indulgent causes far more damage than hard work. So David is not doing what he should be doing. So we see that David maybe was filled with self-pity. David is, is all alone. He's not handling the isolation well. Then we see that David is, is not engaged in what he should be doing. He's not busy. He's not active. And so I think it's very important that we have structure in our lives that we're very, very busy. So the, the next thing about this whole thing with David is when did David sin? When did the sin become sin? When did sin become sin? Here's an important thing for us to know about as Christians about sexuality. What we need to know about uh, sexuality as Christians is being tempted is not a sin. Being tempted is not a sin. Uh, if you see an attractive person and you say, well, there's an attractive person, that is not a sin. Uh, some of you have heard me tell the story many times. When I was in Bible college, I was uh, down there with a bunch of my friends in Pensacola, Florida. It's a beach town, and we'd been playing tennis on Saturday morning, and uh, we're we're coming home from our tennis, and we're sitting at the uh, at, at the uh, at the red light uh, in a in a station wagon. How many remember station wagons? We're sitting in a station wagon, and this beautiful girl in a bikini, walking a dog walks across right in front of us. And we're all Bible college students, and we're gonna be pastors and missionaries, and we're all there, and we see this voluptuous, beautiful woman walking this dog. So, gosh, we didn't plan that. There it was, you know, what do you do with that? So, it, I mean, it was so awkward in the car. People were looking down, and they weren't saying anything, and, and it was just weird, and I felt like somebody should say something, and so finally I said, that is some dog. That is some dog. <laughs> So it's important that we know that it's okay to be attracted to another person. Genesis chapter 24 says that when Rebekah came to the well, uh, Abraham's servant went to get a wife for Isaac. And it said when she came, it said in the, in the Hebrew, she was beautiful, fair to look upon. The Bible acknowledges that people are attractive. Now, if you get married, men, if you get, when you get married and you stand at the altar and young guys come to me and they say, you know, boy, I'm struggling with, you know, my thought life and trying to be pure as a Christian. I'm struggling with that. And and, and they say, I'm just going to get married when I get married. And I said, that's great. I mean, marriage really helps. That's important. But when you get married, that does not solve your problem. Because there's still beautiful people in the world. And when you get married, God doesn't make, if you're a man, God doesn't make all the other women look ugly. So being tempted is not A sin my tennis buddies were out to breakfast one morning and they said, you know, we're we're at the uh, the greenhouse and off of Rehoboth Avenue having a great breakfast and after tennis and this beautiful uh, waitress comes and my tennis buddies look at me after she walks away. Is it okay to look at someone that's so attractive like that? And my standard answer is, you know, you know, it's it's one thing for a bird to climb a fly over your head. It's another thing. to Let the bird build a nest on top of your head. That's a difference. And maybe that's my philosophy about that. But, you know, hey, it's okay to acknowledge. And if David was on the roof and he happened upon Bathsheba and she was beautiful, that was not where he sinned. If he went on the roof to look for Bathsheba, sin was already working in him. He was already carried away with his his infidelity in his heart. But if he saw her, whoa, there's a beautiful woman. And he has acknowledged that. So your brain, and, and every male brain particularly, I don't understand women's brains. I don't know that anybody is. But anyhow, uh, I, that was just a joke. That's a terrible, terrible joke. Terrible joke, actually. But when you go and you see an apple tree, it doesn't light up the same way as if you see an attractive person. So God wired us to recognize human beauty. So that's not the sin. Humans, you know, church and spiritual people have trouble with uh, understanding our human sexuality. And it's very, very important that we understand that that's a gift that God gave us. And that is to be satisfied in the, in the confines and the wonderful uh, parameters of, of covenant relationship with your, in your marriage life, in your marriage life. So a very important thing. So when did David sin? Was it when he saw her? Not necessarily. Um... But when he began to act on that sin, that feeling, and he began to say, hey, who is that woman? And you see the grace of God in the Bible? Uh, The person he asked said, that's Bathsheba, the wife of Eliliam, Eliliam, and the wife of Uriah the, the Hittite. So his first person he asked gave him a warning. Hey, this is not someone that's legitimate for you. And I just have to say this about, uh, this, this part of the story, when it says Bathsheba was the daughter of Aliam Al- 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 and the, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, we think about the, the porn industry in our culture that's just so pervasive. And when you think about the whole thing, remember this. Every woman that is viewed in, in pornographic uh, situation, every one of those women is somebody's daughter. Is somebody's daughter Bathsheba was the was the daughter of a, a liliam and so we need to think about our sexuality when you think about the whole sexual perversion of our culture we need to contextualize it properly that that is a person that's somebody's daughter and David ran through the red light and he just he took her and he, he uh, he engaged in illicit behavior with her. And we don't know, you know, we, here, you know, David, I think all that stuff I talked about, the self-pity and the tiredness and the sense of entitlement, I think all that was at play. There's a big, you know, people talk about, was, was Bathsheba uh, complicit in the story? She lives next to the palace and she's taking a bath out in the open daylight. Now, the Bible says, it says in the NIV, the evening. Most translations say the late afternoon. So she's out there taking a bath. And if you live next to the White House, you know, you think you would know where you live. But I think it's really difficult to say that she was complicit in this. She didn't go. She went along with it. But maybe it's because he was the king. And there's nowhere in the text that she is uh, that she's blamed. All the blame goes to David. All the responsibility goes to David. So here's the thing. She gets pregnant, and he brings her, uh, brings her husband home to try to get him to sleep with her so he can cover up the sin that he's committed. And it's a really, really uh, terrible thing that he's doing. He's trying to cover up this whole thing and try to make it so it looks like that Uriah is, is the husband uh, or the father of the child. And so that's what, that's what he tries to do, and it doesn't work because Uriah is so loyal to the army. Now, I want to tell you how bad this is, what David did. Uriah, if you go to 2 Samuel chapter 23, there's a list of David's top soldiers. There's 30 top soldiers. And Uriah is one of those soldiers. And when David was running from Saul and he was living in the caves, Uriah was one of those loyal men that came to support David while he was in the cave and took care of him and loved him. And so he's trying to use this man to cover up his own sin. And the Bible says this. Here's, what, here's the verse that's important for this point. Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen: Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. So David's kind to conceal his sin, and uh, the Bible says that we need to confess our sins and renounce our sin, which means to walk away from it. So David's doing everything he shouldn't do. He's covering up his sin. He's trying to, he's trying to hide his sin, and it's, it's not working. And so we can't, we can't cover up our sins. Here's the, here's the point of the story as well, an uncomfortable point. Things that are done in secret like this always come to light. Things that are done in secret like this always come to light. It says in Luke 12, verse 2, there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. I remember uh, when my boys were little, one year I got them, uh, for Christmas, I got them two Beagle puppies. And, uh, and I got these puppies, you know, on Christmas Eve, went to pick them up. And had them outside, and it was a surprise for the boys. And we brought them to the table for breakfast, and we had a little devotions, and uh, they ha- we hadn't given them the puppies yet. But the whole time we were eating breakfast, the beagle puppies are barking in the backyard, <laughs> and the boys kept looking out the sliding glass doors at those, you know, trying to see where the sound was coming from, and uh, you know, so we we couldn't conceal that, we couldn't hold that, we couldn't we couldn't cover it up. When you think about, you know, when you try to cover up something, you know, when you try to cover up something, it eats at you and it gives you uh, angst and it, it bothers you and it's, it's deeply, deeply troubling. So the Bible says in order to become free, we have to confess our sins in order, we can then, in order that we can prosper. And we need to uh, renounce them and turn from them. And David did just the opposite. So finally... Uh, David is confronted by Nathan, the prophet, and Nathan confronts him. And David finds out that in the story, uh, we find out that David is is convicted of his sins. And David says this, he says, as Nathan confronts him with this wonderful story, uh, you know, that really pricks his heart. David says, when Nathan says, you're the man, David, you're the man, you're the one that did this. The Bible says that when Nathan said that, David said, I have sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan immediately responds, David, you are forgiven of your sin and you will not die for this sin. So, David confesses. He never never blames anybody else. He doesn't blame Bathsheba for out there being naked. He doesn't blame anybody for, you know, anybody. He takes full responsibility. Confession is when we say, you know, it's not my wife's fault. It's It's not the world's fault. It's not my TV's fault. It's not my computer's fault. It's my fault. I take responsibility for my sin. And David repented of his sins, and then the Lord began to work in his life. Now, here's what we need to know, and I'm out of time here, but what we need to know about David is that David, when he committed these sins, he created a lot of chaos in his life. So from this point on in David's life, there's going to be all kinds of trouble. God forgave him. But as God forgave him, the grace came to him, and we find that in Psalm 51, as the grace of God came into David's life, the forgiveness of the Lord, there was still these consequences. He created this complicated situation. Three of his sons are murdered after this. One of his sons creates a a coup d'etat against him, Absalom, and then Absalom takes his harem, David's harem, and sleeps with him in public. What David had done in secret now has become very public. And so David had all these consequences. God forgives us of our sins, but when we engage in something so terrible as what David did, it creates a complication in our life, very complicated. And so we need to you know, remember, even though David's forgiven of his sins... He is forgiven, and God has got a wonderful plan, and David, is, his, his sin is not mentioned in the New Testament. He's, he's, God is working in his life, but the actions that he had engaged in create this ripple effect of, of complications in his life, and it becomes very, very complicated for David. I remember when I was a little kid playing sandlot baseball in the, in the backyard, and uh, Big Maple Tree was the uh, first base, and beyond the maple tree is my my mom and dad's house, my sister's bedroom, I swung on a a ball that came and I hit that ball right of the uh, maple tree and it's heading toward my sister's bedroom window. I hit that uh, baseball, it's heading toward the window and as soon as I saw it heading toward the window, I was repentant, I was sorry, I wish I'd never swung. But as as soon as it went through that window, my life got complicated. (laughs) When my dad got home, it got really complicated. So say this with me. God forgives, but he loves us enough to let us walk out the complications of our behavior. So when we think about David, we think about how he, such a great man, such a godly man, such a righteous man, maybe that self-pity got in him. And he and he fell into something he shouldn't have fallen into. And then as he fell into that, God restored him, worked in his life, and all that happened such in such a good way. But out of that came all these complications. All these complications. And I want you to know that the best life is a simple life, an uncomplicated life. Love your wife love your husband, come to church, read the Bible, raise your kids, work hard. When your, your eye gets turned, turn it back to where it should be because when you live the right kind of life, the Bible says, you know, if you want a good life, flee from evil, flee from wickedness because when you engage in things that you shouldn't engage in, it's going to complicate your life. So David, the story ends where... He, uh, you know, he and Bathsheba end up married together, and the baby, the first baby, dies from the pregnancy uh, when he was had the affair with her. The second baby they had was a little boy named Solomon. Solomon was the man who built the temple. Solomon was the one who expanded the kingdom to the greatest degree. And Solomon's name means peace. And any time a child is born out of a crazy situation. How many of know that God still has a plan for that child? And he calls that child Solomon. Solomon is the name of that child. He's going to be peace. He's going to bring peace in the land of chaos. And then Nathan says, hey, let's not just call him Solomon. Let's call him Jedidiah. So Solomon had two names. Let's name him Jedidiah. And Jedidiah means loved by the Lord, loved by the Lord. David, you're still loved by the Lord. You're still loved by the Lord. I want you to say this. Even though I messed up, I'm still loved by the Lord. We went to Outer Banks a couple weeks ago, and uh, I got a kite for my grandkids. They'd already lost one kite before I got there, gone in the, the Atlantic Ocean. So I bought a kite for my grandkids. And I didn't buy a real expensive one because I thought, you know, who knows what's gonna happen to this kite. They lost one already. So I got this kite and, uh, and I, I went out there with, with Nixon and Nora and Jack. Jack's my youngest grandson. He's uh, f- uh, five, almost six. And then uh, Nixon is seven, Nora's eight. And uh, and and so they said to me on the way out. Nixon and Nora said, "Papa, are you gonna let are you gonna let Jack fly the kite?" I said, "Yes. Listen, we're all you know. He's he's one of us. We're going he's gonna fly the kite." Nora said, "We're never gonna bring that kite home again. That kite is gonna be gone." <laughs> so Nora, she just tells it how it is. So we we. Uh, we went out there, and Nixon got to fly the kite first, and then his time was up, and then I gave it to Nora, and Nora's got the kite. She's running all around, and she's having the best time with that kite. She's just running. And then I said, Nora, we've got to give it to Jack. And so we, we gave it to Jack. I said, Now, Jack, I helped him grab a hold of it. I said, Jack, hold on to this kite. Don't let it go. I said, you Just hold on to it. And he's running around like Nora, having the best, best time, and he trips and falls, and there goes the kite. <laughs> And uh, I have to say, you know, I paid for the kite. Uh, I didn't want to lose the kite, but I just, for a moment, I said, Jack, why did you do that? I don't know, Papa. Of course, the kite was gone. But you know what? It just a split second. So I, I love that little boy, hugged him. He lost the kite. He made a mistake. But he's still my grandson. David? You made a big mistake, big mistake, but you're still my son. The story has consequences and grace mixed together. It's a very important thing. Would you lift your hands to the Lord? Let's let the Lord just speak to us. Um, Father God, we just thank you for this. Thank you for this word, a word of warning about how we walk, how we walk with the Lord. Uh, Lord, that we humble ourselves before you as we live for you, God, Don't let us ever get cocky or arrogant that we're like beyond that, and how could they? But let us be be humble. Let's walk with humility so that you can keep our feet from falling. And we thank you for your wonderful restoration of David, and we thank you for your love for us today, and we commit ourselves to you. We ask today as we go out into a new week that you'll keep us, everybody at guy and everybody here, that you'll keep us strong, that you'll keep us strong, keep us from falling, guard our steps. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. And everybody said amen and amen. Thank you so much for joining us on the Bayshore podcast. I want to encourage you to take this message you just received and allow it to go deep into your soul and let Jesus do the deep work that only he can do. A special thanks to everyone that gives generously to Bayshore. It's because of you that this ministry is possible, creating life change all over the world. You can be a part of spreading the message around the world by going to bayshore.online and clicking give. For all things Bayshore, visit bayshore.online to find out what your next step may be. You can subscribe right here and share this podcast with your friends and family. Thank you again for listening. God bless you.